Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. All right. Welcome. Welcome to the show. And um, we're going to do something a little bit complicated here, which is try to talk about two really major franchise IP type series, each of them derived from the world of high fantasy, um, each of them uh, with a previously proven record at the box office or whatever the online equivalent, uh, the streaming equivalent, uh, the prestige TV equivalent of the box office uh, would be. So... <laughs> do I sound totally unprepared? I feel like I sound totally unprepared. What we're going to do is we're going to talk about House of the Dragon, uh, which is a prequel to Game of Thrones. Uh, and then we're also going to talk about the Rings of Power, which is a prequel to the Lord of the Rings. Uh, it's that simple. It's really that simple. One of them is airing on uh, Amazon Prime. That would be the Tolkien uh, Rings of Power one. The other one is on HBO Max. Uh, that would be uh, House of the Dragon. So um, here we go, uh, and let me tell you who's on the panel. Um, it's Rebecca Castellani, the co-founder of Quiet Corner Communications and a freelance writer. Sam Hattleman works in music public relation and hosts the Sam Hattleman Show on Radio Free Brooklyn, uh, and he talks too much and he smells of rotten leaves. That's not really true, but that's like something somebody says to somebody else. It's two elves, right? <laughs> And one of the elves says, you talk too much and you smell like rotten leaves. That's not how elves talk. They don't say things Ugh. like that to each other. Uh, Bill Usman is professor of media studies uh, at Sacred Heart University. And this is really exciting. I don't know if it's been announced yet. He is opening the first ever Hartford area crab feeders franchise. It's a, a <laughs> brand new, uh, it's like a sort of seafood restaurant where the seafood eats you. Um, and Hey, it's fun. Don't <laughs> knock it till you try no, it. No, I just, I'm worried that you've got a lot of your retirement m money tied up in this thing and it just may not take off. But um, all right, so we're gonna, we are going to begin with Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon. This is the um, kind of second iteration of television interpretation uh, of the Game of Thrones franchise, which is developed by George R. R. Martin, who, I mean, it should be noted, was heavily influenced by uh, and bewitched by the work of Tolkien, too. So, um, you know, they, they should be friendly towards one another, kind of. Uh, but they're also very, very different. So, um, so I, you know, Rebecca, I feel like you and I are the two kind of fantasy nerds in this conversation. So maybe you and I should get it going here. Uh, <laughs> and, and so, I, I don't know. So far, House of the Dragon does seem to me to be structurally and tonally a little different from Game of Thrones. But I just maybe just want to kind of take your overall temperature on it to begin with. Yeah, I think it has to be structurally and tonally a little bit different given how divisive the end of Game of Thrones was. Um, you, like me, feel we've really experienced a trauma by how uh, let down we were by the end of Game of Thrones. I think that is shared by anyone that watched the show from its entirety. So I think that they were very intentional to make House of the Dragon feel a little bit like a different show while still very firmly being in the Game of Thrones multiverse, if you will. Um, and I think that that has worked so far. I do think there are certain things that are lacking and missing having watched Game of Thrones and loved Game of Thrones, but I'm ready to kind of see how it departs from 
you know, some of the tonal things that made Game of Thrones so great and see what it can do striding out on its own. Yeah, and it's sort of interesting, Sam, that we are doing this show on um, the the live, the supposedly live version of the show is happening just as uh, in real life uh, King Charles the Third is uh, <laughs> is talking uh, about it, the the death of his mother. Because I mean, in particular, Sam, because the the thrust of the House of the House of the Dragon so far, instead of changing scenes all the time, changing milieus, changing different family houses within its imagined world, we've been heavily rooted in the Targaryen court, which is a kind of rundown, uh, at least emotionally, spiritually, psychologically rundown <laughs> and very cynical psychological environment. Uh, and it, it is sort of royalty trying to figure out how to deal with succession and what to do with itself. And I, I guess I'm wondering, how's that working for you so far, Sam? Well, it's going to be a rough day for the monarchy because I was super lukewarm about it. I don't know. I like I, if it kind of feels like they're just trying to recreate the magic of Game of Thrones, which I totally understand. And I like at that point you just brought up that we're not like going across the globe and a bunch of different sects of Game of Thrones. Like it's really focused in on one family. I just don't think like the character development to this point is interesting enough to keep me in. I really like Matt Smith. I think Matt Smith is yeah. absolutely fantastic at being horrible with Game <laughs> of Thrones, which Game of Thrones has always had a knack for like, just developing these truly awful characters and really fantastic ways. Um, I I don't know. I'm just not sold yet. I I thought I was going to like it. I'm like secretly a dork. I know that it doesn't really seem like that for some reason or another. And I wanted to en- enjoy it. Um, no, you seem like a dork. Don't... You just don't seem like a fantasy dork. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just... Um, yeah, I don't really see. The, I don't really get why they made it. I feel like Irene. I, I, I don't get it. I don't understand why we. What was the need? Well, I mean, a, a couple of things. I just want to say one thing about Matt Smith, which is, uh, if that's a name that sounds vaguely familiar, he was one of the Doctor Who's. Talk about long-running uh, sci-fi or fantasy franchises. He was a Doctor Who. But kind of interestingly, one of his more memorable recent roles was as the young Prince Philip in the earliest yes. iteration of the, the Claire Foy period of the of QE2 on the series The Crown. So so Matt Smith is a Papulian through line today. We, we, we can use him here. We should also say that he plays Damon. Uh, who is the angriest and most louche and probably least trustworthy Targaryen and therefore very interested in accumulating power if he possibly can. Um, and so, yeah, keep, we're, we're keeping our eye on Damon because we know he's kind of bad news. So, Bill Usman, this is all kind of terra incognita. It was important to have <laughs> one guest who just like is not imbued in this stuff, who is making his first footprints in the snows uh, of Middle Earth and, and Westeros at the same time. So I see what you did there. <laughs> How are things going? Well, I'm really proud to have been chosen to be the dunce of the group uh, <laughs> and to be thrust in with you experts. Thanks a lot. Um, no, I have to admit, um, I got to turn in my my nerd card on the on these. And I worked really hard for that card, <laughs> buying lots and lots of comic books and reading tons and tons of science fiction. But um, this this type of um, I, I think I've said this before on the nose, this type of, you know, dragons in the sky uh, fantasy has never really been something that has sparked my interest. Um, 
completely, even though I am into very much, you know, science fiction and comic book worlds and, and things of this. So all of this, as you say, is my first, you know, dipping my toes into those crab infested waters. Um, and I have to admit, I do feel a little lost. And there were things you all were saying in your emails that I could not parse at all. And I'm, I'm even having a little bit of a heart. So I binged both of those, both of these uh, three episodes of each over the last two days. And um, they're blurring in my head a little bit. But what I will say is so far, um, House of the Dragon is more appealing to me. Um, although I am a bit lost, there are things about it that I really do kind of like, um, the uses and abuses of power, the family conflicts, the egos, uh, Lori, uh, my wife who is watching it with me called it succession with dragons. (laughs) I think that's pretty good. Um, the gender politics of it, Mm. I think are really interesting is the queen who never was. Is that like, I'm thinking about Hillary Clinton Mm. uh, as they refer to her as the queen who never was. So at least for house of the dragon, um, as a neophyte, I am kind of enjoying it. Uh, I know that's not Supreme (laughs) uh, uh, (laughs) phrase, but, but, you know, put that on the poster kind of enjoy, kind of enjoying it. Um, but, but it might lure me into Game of Thrones, which I had never been into at all before in the past. Right. So I'm gonna play, we're going to play a clip right here. One thing I do want to say, just because Bill just uh, put a little pin in it, and I think it's worth mentioning. I mean, if there's a real difference, if there's historically a real difference between Tolkien and George R.R. R. Martin, it would be, an, and George R.R. R. Martin himself said, What's Aragorn's tax policy? Uh, the point of that, being, the point of that being that Aragorn is eventually going to become king in the original Lord of the Rings series. But you don't really know anything about what he thinks about anything. He's just like a really good guy. So you just sort of think, <laughs> well, he's just so good, he's just going to be a good king. But I mean, his his he's always been much more interested in how governments are run. There's a ton yes. of politics in in the original Game of Thrones, and there's a ton of politics and more politics to come uh, in House of the Dragon. In a way, there typically yeah. isn't. I think. Battlestar Galactica is the only other franchise I can think of where where policy really kind of comes alive in a very recognizable way. All right. Here's a little clip from House of the Dragon. You're going to hear Reese Ifans as Sir Otto Hightower. I'm not going to explain what their title is. I was going to say he's the the hand of the king. That's just not going to work, though. Uh, Patty Considine is uh, King Viserys, uh, and David Horovich is Grand Meister Melos. No one here can know what Daemon would do were he king, but no one can doubt his ambition. Look at what he did with the gold cloaks. The city watches fiercely loyal to him. An army 2,000 strong. An army you gave him, Otto. I named Damon Master of Laws, but you said he was a tyrant. As Master of Coin, you said he was a spendthrift that would beggar the realm. Putting Damon in command of the city watch was your solution. A half measure, your grace. The truth is, Damon should be far away from this court. Damon is my brother. My blood. And he will have his place at my court. Let him keep his place at court, your grace. But if the gods should visit some further tragedy on you, either by design or accident... What are you saying? My brother would murder me. Take my crown. Are you? Please. Damon has ambition, yes. But not for the throne. He lacks the patience for it. 
The gods have yet to make a man who lacks the patience for absolute power, Your Grace. <laughs> uh, that's a good line there at the end. So, yeah, Rebecca, I mean, the, the, there's a lot of talking, um, uh, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. Uh, but there's a lot of talking and then occasional dragon flights and kind of a battle in episode three. Um, but but I, I, I think either you have the patience for that or not, right? You have to sort of be willing to wade through. And it's more complicated be- or more difficult because it is just this one family. Everybody in the family looks like Johnny or Edgar Winter. Uh, and, uh, and and they all have names that are really kind of similar too. <laughs> Except for Damon. Damon's yeah. so easily remembered because everybody else is named Viserys or Viserys. Or- There's always one. There's like a Sam <laughs> or a Chuck that gets thrown in there. And you're like, where did he come from? Across so, the narrow sea. So let me ask it to you this way, Rebecca. What's going to make it work for you? If it's going to work for you, where does it have to go? What is it have to do? So for me, what is working so far and what needs to continue working is the writing. Um, I don't really care that much about the CGI and the battles. And I think what made the early seasons of Game of Thrones so great is what it, because it didn't have this big bloated budget. They had to do all the battles off scene. You would hear about the results of the battle and then we'd get back to the court intrigue. Who's backstabbing who? Who do we trust? Who's getting married? Who's violated their marriage agreement? What that's going to lead to. That's what made the the show so great. And I think what it really started to suffer in the later seasons is when it started to rely too much on what it thought the audience wanted to see. Big set pieces, not enough budget for CGI. So you've got some CGI dragons, but we're going to just completely ignore other CGI components, such as the dire wolves, which in the early seasons were a really critical part of the story. So I think what I like so far about House of the Dragon is despite it's got a much bigger budget than Game of Thrones ever did starting off with. And yes, we've got a bunch of CGI dragons flying around, which is objectively cool to look at. It is making sure it's staying true to the original essence of Game of Thrones, which is tight dialogue, uh, a lot of things happening very quickly that you're not necessarily aware of. And then I think in that way, Bill, your succession comparison is really apt. I spend a lot of the time being like, what is going on right now with succession? But I'm still really enjoying the ride. And I'm aware of the interpersonal dynamics and how high the stakes are, even if I don't actually understand the stakes themselves. And I think that's what House of the Dragon is kind of, you know, dredging up from those early seasons of Game of Thrones that were so successful and memorable was that it's really more about what's going on at the high council than what's happening on the battlefield. All right. Uh, I believe we're being joined in progress from the actual real life royal thing that was just happening. So um, so welcome aboard, listeners. Uh, this is The Nose, and we are talking about House of the Dragon and the Rings of Power, uh, which all seems very apt at this particular moment. So Sam, you know, another part of this is, I mean, it, it, maybe you can, you want to talk about both of them. Yeah, there's the CGI, there's the dragons, there's there's also some pretty interesting actors here. Patty Considine, in particular, who plays Viserys, uh, is, plays him as this sort of perennially wounded person. He's, there's something, there's a, just a sadness and a stillness that kind of hangs over him. He's an amazing actor. I saw, I was lucky enough to see him in The Ferryman uh, on Broadway, but um, but I, I don't know. Are there characters who, who are grabbing your attention at this point? point uh and 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 are the actors doing that work for you um i think patty's cool he's kind of like a simpy ned stark which kind of does it for me uh <laughs> i like uh millie alcock uh the lead yeah. I, th- yeah. I think she's but what's interesting i think unless i'm understanding this wrong game of thrones was more like sequential while this is going to be more conceptual like it goes over like months and years and yes. I, th- I think as the season goes on they're going to replace characters yes. like older characters well, they're going to yeah. they're going to replace uh, actors they're going to the, they're yeah. going to change out yeah. the rules yeah. yeah. And uh, I think that that 
that could make a stark difference for it with Game of Thrones to me. Um, and yeah, like I said, I think Matt Smith is absolutely incredible. What I will say about the Game of Thrones universe is that they are so good at the anti-hero thing. Like nobody's clean. It, it, that is kind of like a succession tie-in, even though I don't think it could shine succession shoes. <laughs> um, I, I, I do see that same dichotomy of like really relatable anti-heroes that you want to root for in some moments and then kind of want to see them get jumped in others like Matt Smith. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I think the character development could could interest me later on. Right. I just I hope this is not a spoiler. I've been rewatching a lot of the original Game of Thrones. And, and to that point, to that sort of gray, everybody lives in a gray area point. Uh, there's a, I just happened within the last few days to see a scene uh, where Tyrion Lannister has been transported, has, has to sort of get out of King's Landing. He's been transported across the sea by Varys, this very world-weary and fascinating uh, eunuch character. Um, and at one point, Varys is kind of encouraging him to be a leader. And he says, you're a good man. And without even looking up from his his ever present flagon of wine, uh, <laughs> Tyrion goes, "I just strangled my mistress with her own necklace and killed my father with a crossbow." <laughs> <laughs> um, but he's a good man. Yeah, he's, <laughs> like, he's a good man. But yeah, right back, that's sort of, of the point. World. Yeah, in the great Game yeah. of Thrones world, there's no such thing as uh, as pure right. virtue. We just don't say it. Uh, and uh, and probably- by comparison, you get a lot of that in Lord of the Rings. You have these like perfectly virtuous, good characters that are compelling, but in very different ways. And I think that Game of Thrones has always distinguished itself in not being afraid to go to the gray and go to the dirt and get down with like some, as you know, Sam says, some really reprehensible antiheroes. So, so Bill, I'm also just kind of curious why why you stayed away. I mean, as you say, you kind of a comic book nerd and you know sci fi nerd. Why did this stuff never really call out to you? And and you sort of hinted at well, maybe it does have a little bit more appeal than you might have guessed. It's it's actually a a really good question. You know, like why I never said hey let's start watching Game of Thrones. I think it might be a little genre prejudice. On my mm. part, to be honest with you, um, I don't I'm not naturally attracted to to the fantasy worlds. Um, if someone told me, um, you know, we're going to make a whole series based on 2001, A Space Odyssey, I might be a little worried uh, about whether <laughs> they could pull that off or not. But I would flock to it. That is the funniest start- idea I've heard in so long. Anyway, continue. I think it might be the most brilliant idea. You have. <laughs> and when they inevitably do this, I want to cut. Right. Um, you you should you I should would, take all that money you're going to make from your crab feeders franchise and plow it into this project. I I think that would work. Um, but I would be <laughs> so into that. And as much as Lori hates space stuff, I would force her to watch that. I, I you know I do think. Um, one of the things that can happen with us, all of us, is that we can get kind of into our own gender lane, uh, gender lanes. Wow, wow, that's an interesting slip. Uh, <laughs> our own genre lanes uh, and gender lanes, both. Um, and that that can be a problem, actually. And I have to say, and allow me to, since you broached the subject, um, allow me to go a little meta. One of the really fun things about being on the nose is I feel often you all don't choose us based on, you know, oh, I know someone is into this. So occasionally you do, but for the most part, you just kind of throw us in Mm. and we have to sink or swim. 
Um, one of the best experiences I've had with that, and the timing is good to bring this up, is when, you know, you guys brought me in to talk about the crown. And, you know, I don't care about the British monarchy at all. And I still don't, even today. Sorry. Um, but I thoroughly enjoyed the crown. And I got so into it. And um, it's something that I probably would not have watched if the nose hadn't called me in to do it. So I do think it has something to do with the way we can just kind of stick very close to, you know, if there's, you know, something that we know is going to appeal to us because of its genre trappings. Um, we flock to it and then are a little bit blinded to other things. And I, I think that's part of why I never really embraced this. Right. By the way, the original concept of the nose was always that we would pick three people uh, who were good talkers and then worry later about what the topic was going to be that week. <laughs> now, sometimes we are a little we 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 put our fingers in the Whitman sampler a little bit more determinedly. And I, I would say in this in this case, McPants and I were having conversations about how there should be a couple of people who have some some familiarity with all this, and there should be one person uh, who who doesn't have any familiar familiarity with this. This is very often again the dunce. Yeah. Well, no, I don't think so. This is very often the job of Irene Papoulis, probably more than anyone else in the uh, in the history of the nose. And so I think you're in splendid company. Um, Indeed. So, Indeed. So. so why don't we transition out of that? Let's go to a break here and we'll uh, come back and we're going to talk about The Rings of Power, the Tolkien adaptation. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to, to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. And we are back. Uh, now we are going to talk with Rebecca Castellani, Sam Haddleman, and Bill Usman. Spin, spin. Uh, about the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. Um, uh, this is the first television series in the Lord of the Rings franchise. Um, this is, I, I don't know if I made it clear or not. So House of Dragons precedes the events of Game of Thrones by, I think, 175 years or so. Um, this one would be preceding um, the events of the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and stuff like that. 
I don't know. It's, there's some nerd who knows the answer to this, but it's got to be like almost a 800, 1,000 years. It's something like that. It's way, way back. So the only overlapping characters you're going to see are elves because elves don't die, um, so they can hang around forever. Uh, and, well, it's not that they don't die, but they they, they don't die unless somebody kills them. Uh, I guess that would be the better way to put it. Uh, so um, this features a – well, I, I guess the other thing to talk about is just the money. Uh, before we get in here, uh, Amazon bought the <laughs> television rights for Lord of the Rings for $250 million, way back in 2017. They have a five-season production commitment worth at least a billion dollars. I'm pretty comfortable saying that these television episodes that we're seeing are the most expensively produced television episodes ever, uh, and they look it. Um, you know, Rebecca was talking about how with Game of Thrones, they'd go to Croatia and like, shoot a few things and, and go, oh, then we can't really show you the battle right now. We'll just tell you about it. There's no problem like that here. There is nothing that they can't possibly show you. So before the panel gets going, let's hear a little clip from the show. It kind of helps establish something of the premise. So you're going to hear Morfid Clark as Galadriel uh, and Robert Arameo as Elrond. Just chopping it up. My brother gave his life hunting Sauron. His task is now mine. I go to seek the enemy it escaped us in the north. Alone, if I must. Ah yes, your mystery sigil. I shared it with the High King. Then why would- Because seeing a sigil does not mean you're any closer to finding Sauron. It is over. The evil is gone. Then why is it not gone from in here? After all you have endured, it is only natural to feel conflicted. Conflicted. I am grateful you have not known evil as I have. But you have not seen what I've seen. I have seen my share. You have not seen what I have seen. Evil does not sleep, Elrond. It waits. And in the moment of our complacency, it blinds us. Also, you talk too much and you smell like rotten leaves. I uh, know that comes later. D- different, different set of elves. Um, all right. So th- these are roles, by the way, that were you, we've seen them before. Kate Blanchett uh, was the original Galadriel. Thousands of years later, I just found out from McPants. It's uh, the, these these the events of these two different the movie series and the TV series are thousands of years apart. Uh, nonetheless, some of these characters are still alive. Elrond, whom you're hearing here, was Hugo Weaving, probably most notorious for the Matrix uh, in the original um, Fellowship of the Ring, etc. So, Sam, Not Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Oh well, yeah, okay. P- pick your, your your you know your Hugo Weaving uh, signature role. I think you know uh, everybody can have their own. Um, I look at him and I think, oh well, he's just gonna he's gonna get Keanu Reeves any second right now. Uh, I don't care whether he's playing Elrond or whoever. Uh, anyway, uh, Sam, we're right in your wheelhouse here. Lord of the Rings, big thing. In fact, maybe this is worth saying, too, which is like I I read Lord of the Rings when I was in high school, which is like in the 1870s or something. I don't remember when it was. But, you know, but it wasn't it was like something that you did pretty much by yourself. Uh, And one thing you could guarantee was that your parents would not even be remotely interested in this. And there would be no talking to them about this particular thing that was so important to you. And one nice thing about Lord of the Rings is it has become kind of intergenerational. You know, it's sort of a a thing like the movies. You come home from college and maybe. Maybe you sit down with your mom and watch it. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's exactly what I did. Like in middle school, I remember we uh, we got like our first flat screen TV. It was like my birthday present because we had this big bulky TV that didn't really do it for me. And my entire family was over and I made like 10 members of my family like sit and watch two Lord of the Rings movies back to back just because I wanted to see all the details and everything. Uh, and then I used to watch the Hobbit animated show before they mm. made those ga- those ghastly movies that ruined my childhood. Um, so I was like very haphazard about this show because The Hobbit was t- like genuinely awful, like one of the worst major awful. film series I've ever seen in my life. So I was like, oh, um, but it was this was cool. I mean, again, I just like. I think that I would just was so fixated on the money that I was like, why <laughs> didn't all this effort and time go into the plot? Mm-hmm. Like, it's so formulaic. It was so predictable like there's 105 different plot lines going on with people with 10 syllable names and you have to keep track of all of it. That's why I think I preferred the character development in House of Dragons to this because this was just so hard to keep track of. Every five minutes, there was a, a different person popping out of a tree that was like a full home. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I I, uh, I think I like the leads a lot. Um, I think the main storyline is sound and I am a sucker for really good CGI. Unfortunately, there is still a 12 year old boy in me. So I was so happy when, you know, the the fighting scene with that troll thingamajig in the cave. Wow, this sounds really dumb. But um, yeah, I like the CGI a lot. I like the fight scenes. I just want to see if they maybe take it in a different direction in the next couple episodes. Yeah. So it's a, a lot to build on there. Um, and so before we get to Rebecca, let's rotate over to Bill. So this is another baptism for you. <laughs> and I just, I guess, how is it going? I, I don't have a more sophisticated question than that. I'm, I'm so embarrassed. I'm even more embarrassed by this because uh, I never got into Lord of the Rings either. And I'm a big uh, literature guy. So it's like I'm the one, the one who's been bio- buried in a pile of leaves for decades now. But um, this one, um, I'm having a little bit more hard of a time with. Um, you all referred earlier to the gray areas of Game of Thrones and, you know, this prequel. Um, I find lord of the rings extremely binary mm. and you know it's depictions of good and evil and evil is what evil is and these are the forces of good i find that quite conservative in its in, in, in its underpinnings and not particularly interesting in terms of narrative and there's an there's another problem i'm having with it and i think you could hear it in that clip that you played it's tries so hard to be profound. Mm. There is just this solemnness to it. And yet I don't find it to be really profound in any ways. And, and so to me, that just comes off as quite ponderous in terms of its approach. And it just kind of drags on. And some of the scenes with like the sweeping strings and stuff, yeah, they look pretty, but they just kind of remind me of overblown perfume ads or something. So um, I I am struggling with this one. It's It's been three episodes, a bit of a slog for me because I'm not being pulled in. I don't care about anybody. Uh, the stakes are represented as so huge and apocalyptic and yet they they're not registering with me yeah i mean i want to get back to the gray area question uh, rebecca too because to me tolkien's tolkien's question is 
can people can really good characters avoid corruption? Um, and and so we we have pretty clear cut good characters and not good characters. But we also see. I mean, a lot of the struggle, a lot of the tension mm-hmm. of Lord of the Rings is: is the ring going to corrupt Frodo? Uh, yeah. Is he going to be turned into a monster, or will he be able to withstand that somehow? And and, and everybody else in this universe uh, is pretty upfront about saying, I, I I couldn't do it. You know, I just uh, I wouldn't be able to do it. This whole thing it would turn me evil. And I think here we don't really know. I, I should say uh, episode three dropped and I just didn't have time to watch it. I don't know what's been dealt with there. But we're heading into this whole thing with this char- this elven character, Celebrimbor, Celebrimbor, whatever his name is. He's like the J. Robert Oppenheimer of Middle Earth. Though. He's like the person who's going to be developing these things that are not necessarily good for the world. He, by the way, is played by an actor who played the private secretary to Queen Elizabeth on the crown. Um, so there's like even more, you know, more through lines. But Rebecca, maybe you could talk a little bit about that too, about, you know, if in fact the the kind of moral and ethical valences are, are different in Tolkien, in what way are they different? Well, I think this is a spoiler for Lord of the Rings, but the reason why Frodo is not corrupted by the ring is not because Frodo himself wasn't going to be corrupted. It's the fellowship around him that prevents him from becoming a baddie because of the ring. And I think that there is some of that that's really missing with the rings of power. We've got Galadriel kind of going off and doing her own thing. She doesn't need anyone's help. She doesn't need any sort of camaraderie. She's her own Mary Sue. She's perfect at everything. And I think that that heart that Jackson's trilogy really highlights about Tolkien is it is about the group. It's about what everyone's strengths are contributing to the party to get them to the end mission. It's not about just Frodo's task and why Frodo is the only one that can do this. Frodo is just a normal dude. And he's as susceptible to the corruptive forces of the ring as uh, Gollum is susceptible. Smeagol was susceptible to it. And Smeagol was not able to get his friend to help him out of that because he was more of an inherently selfish person. But I think that like that sort of like centrifuge that uh, Jackson's trilogy articulates so well. Like we've got this core group of people. Yes, they get fractured, but you feel the heart of the fellowship throughout those three movies. So I think that that's really missing. There's too many characters. Uh, we don't really care that much about any of these characters yet. Whereas there is that sort of linear trajectory with Lord of the Rings where you get introduced to the hobbits, they pick up Aragorn, they pick up Legolas. So you kind of, it builds and builds and you feel like your core group growing versus jumping all over middle earth. Honestly, kind of like game of Thrones where you've got like 20 seconds with this family and then we're bopping over the narrow sea and we're going to check in with Daenerys and then we're going to go back to high time. I mean, it, it just gets so frenetic sometimes. And I think that that's, for first time watchers and the first, you know, for Bill, who's, you know, dipping his toes into this enormous world for the first time, I can see how that's really alienating. So that's one issue right off the bat. I think the other issue for me is the CGI is that what made Jackson's trilogy so fantastic was that despite the fact that this is a fantasy series, it feels really realistic. And that just comes down to like detailing in the costumes, the fact that it was all filmed in New Zealand. They were building sets that they were filming, not creating them on a computer. So it had that like really grit, that raw, that realism that made you feel like, yes, are there orcs and trolls and things in this universe that don't belong in our universe? Absolutely. But I still understand who these people are. I feel their struggle. And that's just completely missing from Rings of Power. It feels like watching a video game in the same way that you could like kind of jump in and cast a mm-hmm. spell. And it just completely takes me out of what made Return of the King in particular. I mean, that movie won Best Picture for a reason. Such a pillar of cinema. 
See, Return of the King is my least favorite of those three movies, but um, but that would be too Two long. Towers is the best, we'll take but two, like, two Towers can, is really good. We yeah. can debate it. Um, so, yeah. So, I, one thing that I do want to say about this, uh, I'm going to stay with you for just a second, Rebecca, is that um, I think, the, first of all, there are really basically four plots going on, unless another one got added in the third episode. <laughs> but you've got, yeah, you've got Galadriel, who's this, you know, who's going to be this great elf queen. Uh, we already know her future, but she's struggling with that whole question. Does she want it? She basically has a chance to go to this place that's sort of a combination of the afterlife and a really great retirement community. So <laughs> is she going to go to this place where she'll never die and she'll just play pickleball every day and she'll always win? Uh, and, and she can't do it. She's got to go back and fight evil some more. That's sort of one of the big plots. You've got uh, Elrond. He is in the sort of J. Robert Oppenheimer uh, subplot. You know, they're, they're going to make these rings. It's not going to work out the way they think it's going to work out. <laughs> um, so you've got that one. You think of the one that I'm enjoying the most. Well, we'll, we'll just go there. We also got the Harfoots. These are these kind mm-hmm. of pre-Hobbits. Uh, this is like Hobbit Erectus uh, or something. You know, it's going to lead to Hobbits uh, and they speak with Irish brogues for some reason. Uh, that doesn't really particularly bother me, but it bothers some people. And then there's this plot involving the people who are usually referred to as the race of men. But there's this kind of bridges of Gondor County relationship going on uh, between a, a woman and an elf. And the, the elves are like the resident state troopers. They're, they, they come in. They make sure, they're sure stuff's okay. <laughs> and I'm finding that one really, really interesting. And I, I like those two actors a lot, too. I don't recognize them, Rebecca, but I think they're terrific. Yeah, I think that the acting there is strong, but I'm bored by it. I just, I, I'm not invested in that plot. The only plot that I'm somewhat invested in is what's happening with the Harfoots and this Mr. Tumnus that fell from the sky. Like, I, I want to know what the deal is there. But yeah, that part's kind of cool. Um, um, that was the my favorite part of it as well. And I think that the reason I like that is because it's kind of like they've taken these two female Harfoots and combined Sam, Frodo, Mary, and Pippin into two. So they're a little more playful. You know, Frodo was always kind of morose and Sam was always anxiety riddled and Mary and Pippin were your comedic relief. And I feel like they've kind of meshed all those four characters together. So I'm enjoying that one. I just like can't get invested in any of this. Um, and I think like we've talked about the money a little bit, but like, does Amazon realize they're Sauron, like their intent on world <laughs> domination, taking this over. And yet they're trying to tell this story about like the little guy prevailing. It just like, it seems like such an odd choice to even make this to begin with. And Colin, you mentioned in our emails, you know, Tolkien's world is enormous. You know, Pan says it's thousands of years have taken place in between the events of Lord of the Rings and the events of Rings of Power. But I mean, Tolkien's universe spends expands into hundreds of thousands of years and there's so many more interesting stories that could be told there are very complex rights issues the Tolkien estate has only granted Amazon the rights to Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit so they're drawing from mostly the appendices to Lord of the Rings which could be a novel in and of itself Mm -hmm. there's so much there but I think if they had focused on a smaller scale and told like one story versus trying to take on, okay, they're forging the rings, Galadriel's rise to power, whatever's going on with the Harfoots. And maybe as the series goes, there'll be more interconnectedness between these disparate stories. But as of right now, I think unless you're a huge Tolkien nerd or really entranced by the CGI of it all, it's hard to find your way into this. Like, I don't really know what's supposed to draw me in and anchor me and make me want to keep watching this. Wait, this box bears the sigil of the Dark Lord Bezos. Um, all right, so, um, so Sam, have you ever seen any of these actors before? I mean, is there essentially anybody in the Rings of Power that you recognize from anything else? 
it was funny. I actually watched this show with like my friend's entire family last <laughs> night, and none of us knew any of the actors. The only one I knew was um Browen. Is that what I say your name? Bryn, uh, I think. Bron, Bron, yeah. yeah. Bron, yeah that was, but that's usually like the fun of these shows, is that like you get to see actors, especially in an international scale, who you might have not caught before. Maybe they're on BBC or something. And that's usually the fun, but the writing is so like dreary that it's not even like a spectacle like i feel like there probably are a lot of really good actors here there it's like um kind of like when they did the prequels to star wars like poor hayden christensen and natalie portman great actors just given these really stale dry lines and i think bill hit on the head by saying it's like trying to be so stoic and yeah use, use these like massive analogies that they carry on for 40 minutes it's like oh my god high school english was fun but i don't need to see it in television form <laughs> um it is like high school English. I mean, there is actually a kind of Shakespearean lilt to the speech, particularly uh, the scenes between Galadriel and Elrond. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I listened to them a second time today, and they, they really are kind of, they're not an iambic pentameter, but they have that kind of Shakespearean lilt to it. You know, Sam, I also feel like you, you can't have familiar actors in these roles. Like, I was really bothered by Liv Tyler in the... Because she's Liv Tyler, you know? I mean, there's just no way to drop Liv Tyler into Middle Earth and not have it seem like it's Liv Tyler. And I'm thinking she's waiting for them to yell cut so she can go have a cigarette or something. Uh, <laughs> I, I just, I think it's really good that we don't recognize these actors. I th- it's good in theory and good in concept. And if you're going to make a show like this, you have to, especially with such a big cast, like it'd just be like really strange if like Timothy Chamolet popped out as like a little hobbit, like living out of a tree. <laughs> no, that would, be, I, that would be so on brand. He'd be perfect. <laughs> yeah, he'd be, be the be, king of the Harfoots. He, he, would, he would be absolutely perfect for it. But I, I, I think uh, just as like Jackson Pollock cast, I hope that they get better lines and storylines moving forward because there's a lot of ambition there. A lot of the actors are really young. Um, I like the dude who plays um, Elrond. I think that he's had a couple moments to really shine. Uh, Galadriel, I think that she's had, you know, her moments. And she's not, I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I'm not I'm not saying it's like, you know, the best of the best, but I think that there's something there. All right. Um, I mean, I, I'm missing Christopher Lee. I'm missing Ian McKellen. Like, where are these like titans? Like, if you're going to have this billion dollar budget, like cast somebody that can carry this. Like, I, I don't know. Right. Well, that's a, I'm an, having a, a hard time. an interesting point. All right. So we're almost out of time here. But Bill, you know, one thing that has happened, I think, in our fantasy and superhero saturated world is you can pump this stuff out pretty fast and pretty easily. And like, I know you're also, I think you're not a Star Wars person either, but like the Star Wars derivative stuff that's going up on Disney these days, it kind of looks like it was, it's eight guys with laptop, eight people with laptops and, you know, a few actors. And it really doesn't look like it's too hard to make this uh, thing. And a lot of times it's not very well thought through. And that's happening a little bit to some of the Marvel stuff too, particularly the stuff being written, released on Disney Plus. I mean, we could talk about the aesthetics of this, but you really do. I'm stealing an idea from Chris Ryan from the Watch podcast. You know, when you're looking at some door that they're trying to open to get into Casa Doom or something, you're looking at it. Somebody thought for three years <laughs> about how that door was going to look. You know, everything in here is re- the money is there, but also there's a sense of curation. There's just never anything that looks, you know, dashed off. Yeah, uh, you're actually giving me a chance, I think, uh, probably on purpose to talk about something that I told you I I felt like I should have talked about last time we were on the nose. And I was on the nose and we were talking about Sandman. You know, the proliferation of this stuff 
not only does it have something to do with economics and how you can, you know, milk so much money out of a franchise, but also because of technological developments. I mean, CGI and how sophisticated it has become. And as you said, that, you know, things that might take have taken months to create in the past can now literally be created by a person on their laptop. I think it does open up the possibility for these things to just be really kind of spectacular to look at. And both of these shows, Rebecca, Rebecca said this also, are spectacular to look at. Um, but you also wonder if as that becomes easier and easier and more and more sophisticated, whether there is going to be too much emphasis on that. And I, I think Sam and Rebecca have both alluded to maybe that's exactly what, what has happened, especially with uh, the Rings one. And Jonathan pointed out to us in, the, in our emails that they don't even credit any actors in the opening credits. Right. They, they don't you want know, you they, to know who those people are. Hey, I don't mean to interrupt you, but we got to go to break here just to have time for some recommendations on the other side. I kind of lost track of time. So let's do that and then we'll come back. All right, I screwed up the clock here, so I got to go fast. Um, uh, our, our technical producers, producers today are Dylan Reyes and Kat Pastor, uh, and the producer of this episode, as usual for the news, is Jonathan McPants. Time to make some recommendations. Sam Hadleman, why don't you get us going? What have you got for us? Uh, I got two things. I'll be quick about it. Uh, this week, I've been thinking a lot about uh, live albums because uh, you know rock and roll has such like a long history with live albums. Whether you're the Allman Brothers, the Grateful Dead, um, and hip hop never really got the same treatment. So I was like excavating for really good live hip hop albums, and I've been listening to Nas's Illmatic with the National Symphony Orchestra that he did at the Kennedy Center. It is absolutely gorgeous. Such a fantastic listen. Anybody can do it. Uh, and the second one I'm going to recommend is Cobra Kai's new season five is streaming today. <laughs> and I know it sounds silly and, but there's no, like that show has no business being as good as, as good as it is. Like it has everything you could want out of a show and it's based on the karate kid. Like, it, right. like I said, it makes no sense. But yeah, listen to Nas and watch Cobra Kai. We we did feature uh, Cobra Kai on this show on the for, during the first season. Uh, so and and I share your excitement about it. Uh, Rebecca Castellani, what are you going to recommend today? Okay, I've got a good sci-fi book for you. Um, the Three Body Problem. I read this mm. summer by I hope I don't mispronounce the last name. Lu Shushin um, won the Hugo in twenty fifteen. It is the first Chinese book to win the Hugo. It's fantastic. Um, without giving away the plot, it kind of deals with first contact and climate change radicals. There are kind of shades of like Ready Player One in there to some regard. It's just a very fascinating book. I haven't ever read a science fiction book written by a Chinese author from the Chinese perspective. It's just absolutely fascinating. Highly recommend. It is the first of three books. I have yet to read the other two, but the first one is masterful. The three-body problem. Um, my second recommendation is Sylvan Esso has a new album out called No Rule Sandy. I was lucky enough to see them perform it in its entirety live at this year's Newport Folk Festival, and it was fantastic. 
Uh, really, the best way I can describe it would be music for if the elves of Middle Earth like to rave. <laughs> it's very ethereal and good, like dancing in your living room music. So highly recommend No Rule Sandy by Sylvanesso. All right. And uh, Bill Usman, how about you? So we went back and we watched uh, Sofia Coppola, uh, Coppola's first feature film, uh, The Virgin Suicides, mm. which came out in 1999. I, it holds up extremely well over the last couple of decades. And I, what I really noticed this time is what a masterful film it is as her debut. It's really built out of all of these small moments and it's very strange and ethereal. Um, I, I think it's really worth revisiting, uh, The Virgin Suicides. And then very quickly, I can't remember if The Nose has covered Reservation Dogs. I think maybe you did. Um, we haven't. We've talked it, about it many times and I'm a big fan, but yeah, go ahead. Great show on Hulu um, and one of the very, very few shows on uh, television that really do representation of indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw, uh, uh, I think Emily Nussbaum was actually asking people to nominate the best show you could possibly watch right now. It was amazing how many, it's people, fantastic. How many people said Reservation Dogs. I will mm-hmm. quickly say, and I'm mainly saying this to Rebecca, but also to the rest of you, um, one thing you can really do is rewatch Game of Thrones because I had the same experience as Rebecca. The ending was so horrible. The final Final season was just kind of bad, Ugh. and I felt like I wasted my you know ten years of my life or something. Um, but going through it again, I'm struck by how good it was, how well drawn these characters are, and and there are just virtues to it that are not eclipsed by how badly it ended. So that's kind I of. I think you're a masochist. Yeah. I couldn't do it again. <laughs> no, it, it really is actually we're, we're we're finding it to be quite fun actually. So uh, I'm also going to mention a book called A Conspiracy of Faith uh, by UC Adler Olson. This is in the North. Nordic noir uh, area, the Nordic noir subgenre of mystery and crime fiction. It is a reminder of how completely sort of pulse-pounding and heart-racing uh, a book can be. There are, there are thrills that, you know, an exciting, dark, uh, detective kind of book can give you that you can't translate onto the screen. It's actually more exciting than, than, than what movies and television can do with the same material. So uh, I've not read the rest of this, uh, the, the series uh, that this guy has written, but uh, the first one, that my first dip into it, A Conspiracy of Faith by UC Adler Olson is great. Last thing, this is not for Bill Usman at all. But Wheel of Time, if you are a fantasy geek at all, Wheel of Time, which is also on Amazon Prime, based on the Robert Jordan novels, I thought was actually pretty good and kind of underrated yeah. and, and under-celebrated. So, yeah, my fellow fantasy nerd is agreeing with me. We got to go now. Thanks very much for listening. Yeah, 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 yeah.